Paul Pringle is a Los Angeles Times reporter who specializes in investigating corruption. In 2019, he and two colleagues won the Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting for their work uncovering the widespread sexual abuse by Dr. George Tyndall at the University of Southern California, an inquiry that grew out of their reporting the year before on Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, dean of USC's medical school. Born in Hazleton and spending a few of his younger years in Wilkes-Barre before moving to California, Paul is a Penn State and California State graduate who recently wrote Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels. Welcome to the News Engine podcast, Paul. Thanks for having me. Now, you had a big night uh, King's College last night. A uh, big crowd came out to see you. And, yeah, it was uh, a nice crowd, a lot of good questions. The students were very enthusiastic and... You know, that was great. For listeners who may be hearing about Bad City for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about the scandal? It's an unbelievable story of drugs, sex, corruption, all by the dean of the University of Southern California School of Medicine. Yes, it is. I mean, the book is uh, grew out of our reporting on that scandal, and mainly that scandal. And it did involve the dean of the medical school at the University of Southern California, he was abusing drugs and, more importantly, or, or worse, providing drugs, dangerous drugs, to a circle of young people, even as he ran the medical school. Um, and as he, you know, performed delicate eye surgeries, he was um, an ophthalmologist, a surgeon. And uh, it, this resulted in one of the young women in his circle overdosing at a hotel in Pasadena. So I found out about that through a staff photographer at the LA Times who was told about it by a, hotel, a manager at that hotel uh, who, was, who became a whistleblower. His name is Devon Kahn. He initially called the paramedics when he found the woman unconscious in his hotel room. A colleague of his called the police. Uh, the paramedics and the police showed up at the hotel. The police found drugs in the room. And after that, nothing happened. There were no arrests, even though the room was registered to the dean and he was present at the overdose, and the drugs, were again, were found in his room. There was no police report filed. It was as if the incident never happened. And this hotel manager tried repeatedly to do the right thing. When he realized there hadn't been an arrest, he made a complaint to the city attorney's office, and he was ignored. He called the office of the president of USC and gave them a very detailed uh, the, the president's staff, a very detailed account of what happened at the hotel and demanded that they take action against the dean. And again, he was ignored. In the meantime, the dean did step down from the deanship, but he remained on faculty. He continued to treat patients and participate in other university events. And he and the university lied about the, the reasons for him uh, giving up the deanship. They said it was to take a wonderful opportunity in biomed. So in the meantime, I started investigating based on this tip that came into the newsroom, and I was met with one stone wall after another. At the passing of the police department, uh, the chief wouldn't speak to me. Uh, others at the, at, the, uh, at the city would not speak to me. The, the only record they gave me was a call for service log, which is sort of a routine document the police file when they accompany paramedics on a call. It was almost completely redacted. Uh, a good thing about it, though, is it had some details, like the time of day and so forth, that matched what um, Devon Kahn, again, the whistleblower, told me, so it certainly added to his credibility. And that continued for a great long time. And USC completely ignored my inquiries. They wouldn't, even acknowledge, they wouldn't even acknowledge receiving an email from me, just so I could say that you know I gave them an opportunity to engage. 
So anyway, that, that went on and on, and I kept knocking on doors and trying to apply pressure on these agencies from behind the scenes. And eventually, they did decide they had to create a police report because they kept denying my records request, and then they stumbled and said they couldn't give me any records because this, this was under investigation. There was an investigation underway. And, of course, my response was, well, how can you have an investigation if you don't even have a police report? So, so the police report is born from you repeatedly asking absolutely. questions. You're absolutely. badgering, you're yes. calling, and finally they say, okay, we've got to create a police report. Yeah. Something happened here. So now they right. basically admit something happened. But now they don't have to talk to you because it's an investigation. Well, they should talk to me. And, in fact, the police spokesperson did answer some of my questions at, only because I kept persisting. And, and that police report was created three months after the incident, something I've never experienced in my career. And even then, they kept it out of my hands for nearly two more months. You know, I, I just kept coming back and back. And, again, they made other mistakes. They made a reference to a report on that uh, call for service log. They didn't tell me that at the time. That turned out to be a reference, as I recall, to an evidence report they filed for the methamphetamine. So they eventually figured that I'm not going to go away. They produced this police report. They identify the dean in the report as a witness to the overdose. And then they had a reference to the, on the, into the, owner, the owner of the drugs. But again, it was redacted. So the story's coming together. And uh, it really, I really cinched it when I got copies of the two 911 calls recordings of the 2911 calls and the dean's on one of the calls you can you can actually hear yeah, he had him. a distinctive voice and of course i matched it with uh you know he does a lot of public appearances so on the web as well as with somebody who works with him was able to identify you know him on the on the recording so now i had a story ready to go i didn't have all the answers i still don't know who the young woman was because we only had her first name and a physical description and, of course, because of medical privacy laws, I couldn't get her last name. I kept trying to match her name and description with Pugliafito, the dean, by doing web searches, social media, and so forth. I came up with a lot of Sarahs, but none that match the description. They'd be, you know, 30 years older or whatever. Um, so, but again, we had, I had enough for a very good story. The city editor, who was my editor, was very enthusiastic about it as were other editors. I think three other editors approved it for publication. Uh, it placed the dean of the medical school at the scene of this overdose. We, had, we loaded up the 911 recordings for readers. Um, you know, we, we had the report, the two reports that I finally got my hands on. But then the top editor wouldn't publish his story. Yeah, so I don't think people realize that. There are so many hurdles that go into reporting a story like you did. You not only have to deal with the usual reporting battles and gathering information and trying to get folks, you know, officials to speak to you, but you actually had to battle your editors at the L.A. Times who at that time did not want to publish this story. Uh, no, I, I called me into it. The story was ready to go. Again, it had been approved for publication by the city editor, the California editor. The, met, uh, the uh, managing editor, the page one editor, it had been cleared by the newsroom attorney. And everything was ready to go. And then I was called into a meeting with the top editor, the editor-in-chief and the managing editor. And he said, we're not going to publish this story. I, I couldn't believe it. I was concerned, you know, uh, for a while because when I first told him about the story, he was not enthusiastic at all. He just said, you should be working on something else. He said, you should be working on something that would 
could put someone in jail. My response was, well, this could put someone in jail. Right. And it's, an, you know, it's about the dean of this huge institution that's so influ- influential. So immediately you know, you're, you're... I'm concerned. You know, yeah, yeah, you're I, thinking, I, I, why are we not right. willing to do this and story? I had, and under this leadership in the newsroom, I had had problems earlier as a, a, a colleague of mine getting USC stories published with any kind of dispatch. A colleague of mine uh, had a, his story on USC was killed earlier. That I, I found out about that later. But we didn't back down. Uh, my editor, Matt Late, the city at the time, uh, we put up a t- tremendous fight in that meeting. And eventually the top editor said, well, I'm not going to close the door to more reporting, um, which is not exactly a ringing endorsement of the enterprise. So after that, um, again, my editor, the California editor, and I put together, we decided we're going to really pull out all the stops to get something published. We're going we're gonna, to you know, put more people on it so we can get something that would make the story unkillable. So we added four more reporters to this story, and we did this in secret. We didn't tell the top editors because we- Four more reporters. Four more reporters, and we were gonna flood the zone, knock on doors, try to get other administrators at USC to confirm some basic stuff, that the dean did lose the deanship because of the overdose, whatever we could get that would make it very difficult, if not impossible, for the paper to actually publish it. Uh, we didn't have much luck on that, getting people to talk. Uh, we really had no luck. But in the meantime, I was able to finally find the young woman. She did something. She it was a parking ticket, a credit report, something like that. And her, uh, a Sarah Warren, popped up on Nexus Lexus, tied to a property that was tied to the dean. So I go on social media. I look for any Sarah Warrens who might be in the Pasadena area. And I'm sent whatever I find, you know, I'm taking photos off uh, Facebook or um, other websites, uh, other social media. And I'm sending them to the whistleblower who witnessed the, you know, the overdose. And I think on my third or fourth try, we got a, we got a match. So now we, now we fan out the reporting team. We, she, had her, she had her record, you know, because of her, her drug problem. And um, she was, that led us to other people in her circle who had records. So now we're fanning across, you know, L.A. and Orange County, gathering court records, you know, police records and so forth. I was able to get to her parents because we found out she was in rehab. We found that out through the court record. And I and a colleague went down to try to speak to her there, and they would not allow us to speak to her. Understandable. But in the meantime, I found her parents, and they were quite helpful. You know, they, they had been trying to get this dean out of their lives for two years. So in comes the reporter, and maybe this is a chance yeah. for something to move here. Right. They had called, you know, they had told the police about him. At one point, their family therapist called the FBI. Nothing worked. So they saw, you know, us, you know, the reporters as maybe their last chance. So they cooperated, and they gave me, you know, maybe hundreds of images, photos and videos of the dean doing drugs. Um, and providing drugs to these young people. And now this made the story unkillable. How can you not publish a story when you have proof, you know, <laughs> visual proof that he's abusing drugs? Again, there's, there's young people uh, using drugs in his presence. The drugs came from him. This is what all these young people we eventually tracked down told us on the record. So we put together, you know, this really blockbuster story. And this was now late March. The initial story was killed the previous month. And we really thought that this story would be published in a week or two. It was not published for three and a half more months. And in that time, uh, again, we got resistance from the top editors. At one point, 
the managing editor wanted to take out the whistleblower from the story, even though his phone call placed knowledge of the overdose in the office of the president of USC, who was still, you know, not talking to us, not responding in any way. We fought that and, you know, and he eventually backed down and the whistleblower stayed back in. They took other material out that we thought was very important. And at the very last minute, and only after we had complained repeatedly, and in the meantime, I went to our corporate office and filed an ethics complaint about this, this story not running. They finally, they finally published the story, but at the very last minute, they went in and took out nearly all of the most damaging material to USC, and that is the fact that this dean was actually trafficking in drugs, including to a 17-year-old and including to the young woman, Sarah Warren, while she was in rehab. It's an unbelievable story. The part that really got my attention is this is not, you know, some adjunct professor, you know, at the at the college teaching a little course on the side. You had mentioned earlier he was still an active surgeon, dean of the School of Medicine, prestigious background, uh, Harvard Medical School, I think. Yep. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in drugs and gifts. I mean, methamphetamine, heroin, living expenses. Um, there was a death of an infant. There's drug dealers. There's phone calls from prison. I mean, the volume of what, what went on is remarkable. And you address all of this in the book. And, and you said kind of at the top of the interview here, all of that, you're fighting to have the, the story published, it finally finds its way into publication at multiple stories, but no criminal charges are ever filed. No, and I have no good answer for that. There was an investigation. So after these, the, edit, the, the editors got fired after this. Uh, it's, yeah, it's important that we should mention yeah, that. After the investigation, when the story was finally published, it exploded on the web. It went worldwide. It got a tremendous amount of attention. It was a, it was a story of the year in terms of readership for the Los Angeles Times. So now the editors have to get behind it. You know, it's out there. So we did do a number of follow-up stories showing that, you know, among other things, that the university had leadership, knew that this dean was a problem. The complaints about his erratic behavior, alcohol abuse. We learned later that one uh, very high-ranking person in the medical school was concerned about drug use. And again, they did nothing about this until the story finally ran. When the story ran, they did fire him. The medical board opened an investigation and eventually took his license. But then, then we learned later that um, he maintained a relationship with one of the young women in his circle, and she had a baby. It wasn't his baby, but the baby died, and, they, and the uh, authorities found methamphetamine in his body. There was an investigation of that that went on for quite some time, and in the end, no charges were filed. Um, I think the determination by the district attorney's office was that the amount of meth found in the baby's body might not be enough to get a conviction, to, to actually tie it to the death. But there were so many other things this guy was involved in. Again, trafficking in drugs. Uh, he perjured himself at the medical, uh, the medical board hearing, and he was never charged with anything. And I have no explanation for that. How does a guy like that fly under the radar in a town like Los Angeles? I mean, millions of people, huge campus. He's actively involved in campus life, campus administration, a medical practice. It had to, even for you, a seasoned veteran reporter who has undoubtedly covered amazing stories over the years. Did it surprise you that he was able to fly under the radar for yeah, was, so long? Yes, it was shocking. It was, just, it was you know, unbelievable. And it, it, you know, sent a couple of messages. Was he just out of his mind and was self-destructive? 
Or was he that arrogant that he thought he could get away with it? Because he wasn't shy. I mean, the the photos no. and the videos are so. I haven't obviously I haven't seen the photos and videos, but but you have, and as I understand it, these are pretty damning. There's no well, doubt damning, that he's. Sure. I believe the the one video I saw, he's taking ecstasy and he's mm-hmm. kind of bragging about it. Yep, he's in his, um, I think a tuxedo, and he's going to some charity ball, something like this, and he says, "I think I'll have a take an ecstasy before the ball." does it looking straight into the camera so he's you know he's a wealthy guy he isn't he isn't your everyday medical school dean if there is such a thing but he you know he was a brilliant brilliant in his field he had patents and uh he had a lot of money so maybe he figured that his money and his influence would keep him out of trouble and you know he's He's right to a certain extent. It almost did keep him out of trouble because the the paper was a little gun shy. Well, not the paper. The editors were a little gun shy about maybe the connection to USC, maybe some relationship that the paper had or some ad dollars. I'm not exactly sure what the, you know, what the concern there was, but they obviously, the the editors had a fear of what might happen if they unleashed the reporter on this. Well, yes. I mean, their their response to this story was the opposite of what it should have been. Um, That, let's get this into the paper as soon as possible. This guy was hurting people. And these were he kids. Was, I mean, this is 20, kids. 21 years old, right? Right. And uh, I remember at one point I was interviewing ethicists about the dean, and one of them pointed out to me, it might have been more than one, that, um, well, you know, you have an ethical responsibility to go public with this information. This guy is hurting people. He's providing dangerous drugs to people. He's still performing surgeries and otherwise providing treatment. And I took that message to the managing editor. That, you know, and this is again, this is back in April, and the story didn't run until July. And during that period, there was no substantial reporting done that added anything of real weight to the story. We did some minor things, like get a couple of cops to look at the videos. Oh, yeah, that looks like they're doing drugs. Like, you know, we have the people in the videos <laughs> right, telling us they're doing right. drugs. Um, you know, it's just, it's, there was just absolutely no excuse for sitting on that story for as long as they did. What was their motivation? Well, there are a lot of ties between. Um, the paper and USC. Most of them are positive. You know, uh, I made sure that two of the members of the reporting team were USC alums. I thought that gave them a moral force in dealing with this school that the other, the rest of us didn't have. Uh, my editor at the time was teaching at USC. You know, teaching a class that that's very common. But USC was again is also just a very powerful institution overall. It had twelve local. Well, not all local, but 12 billionaires on its board, if you can imagine that. It did have a partnership with us in a book festival. So there were these ties, and that made us concerned that are we, is this story getting a different type of treatment because of those ties? Now, and the editors have all denied that, and they say this is all, you know, my imagination or something like that. But uh, every other member of the reporting and editing team vouches for my account. Right, and those out. are not uncommon ties. I mean, even this newspaper, much smaller town, much smaller market, this newspaper has connections to the local universities. Um, we've got people who work in this building who teach. We have people who sit on boards. So it's not an unusual situation. The The Los Angeles Times was is not unique in the sense that they would be and maybe even should be connected to local institution. That is not an uncommon right. situation. Uh, nothing to hide there, right? But when you have those kinds of ties, in my view, it's even it's more important that you're transparent and you're about number one about those ties but also that you take special care to make sure you're not pulling any punches 
with the institution that you're when you cover that institution you do it the way you would any other institution and that didn't happen here it just did not happen I say one of the most shocking parts of this uh, pull your feet case is the settlement that USC came up with so they pay a million and a half bucks but they also insist and get all of the photos and videos in, involving uh, the doctor um, deleted. They actually get access to the devices. I was shocked when I read that. I'm certain you're shocked by that. And have you ever heard of such a, a settlement? I mean, deleting all of the videos and photos, it, it damages any case that may come forward in the in the future. That was, yeah, that was yet another shocking episode in all of this. They did that to maintain the cover-up. Even though now it's out there, what happened? They didn't want it to go any farther. So as a, as a condition of this very modest settlement, given what this family was put through, they, yes, they required that every image be destroyed. Not turned over to the police, not made, you know, not, they didn't first contact the DA and say, hey, do you have all of this stuff or the medical board? No, they just had it, they had the family go to a tech shop near d- downtown somewhere and erased everything. They're, they're, you know, as they told me, they had a, a they, the erasures were so thorough they had to create new Apple IDs. And I found out about this later. Then they also signed an NDA, so they couldn't talk about this, the family. And by the way, this was all during the, you know, the height of the Me Too movement. And there was sexual exploitation going on here, of course. And you would think that a university wouldn't do this, but they did it. And one of their legal advisors at the time was a former U.S. attorney. She went along with this. She actually signed the document, among those who signed the document, if I, if I recall, that uh, enforced this, um, this agreement. Yeah, it was terrible. There's something almost insanely brazen about that. In this digital age, there, there's, these are photos and videos. So, sure, I can take them off of a specific device. But they're in a cloud. They're on a server. They may be in the hands of a reporter somewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I don't exactly understand what they thought they were accomplishing by that. They get, as you said, a very modest settlement. I mean, a million and a half bucks sounds like a lot of money, but it's not considering what these kids went through in the, in the right. horror of and you know this young family, woman's yeah. life, right, and, right. and the rehab. But these images are still out there. They're just not in the possession of the family anymore. Right. So, and I have a good number of them. So, yeah, that was terrible, and I eventually wrote a story about it when I found out about it. And again, the U, even under the new leadership, the, finally the USC president lost the presidency. This was after the George Tyndall case broke. Um, and again, we learned that complaints about him had gone on for decades and nothing happened. And he was accused of sexually abusing his student patients that entire period, like 30 years. So you and your team are investigating Tyndall, and and you kind of come across this Pugliafito case sort of as part of that. No, no, it was, you, the, it was the other way around. Yeah, we did the Pugliafito case, and then, and again, the story ran that July in 2017, and then early in 2018, uh, one of my colleagues, Harriet Ryan, got a tip about a second bad doctor. And so we started looking into that, uh, Harriet, Matt Hamilton, and I. And um, again, the the editors who would not publish the Pugliafito story with any kind of urgency, they're now gone. They were fired. So now we did have the support of the leadership of, this, of the newspaper. And we filed, uh, the, the you know, the, the Tyndall story was certainly just as hard-hitting as a Pugliafito story, just as legally risky, if not more so, because we're essentially accusing him of crimes 
And that story was published within three weeks of the draft being filed. Three weeks. Three weeks, as opposed to, again, my, I filed the first story about Puglia in October. So what was that, nine, ten months before anything? The better part of a word, year. Yeah, yeah, before a single word was published. So that's how things have changed. And, and they're that way now at the LA Times. You know, we have new editors, uh, new owners, very supportive. And what happened then was an aberration. And, a, you know, it certainly hasn't happened since, and I don't think it'll ever happen again. You've been there a long time. Now, it is hard enough to power through freedom of information and public officials and members of the community who do or don't or won't talk to the media. You fought a fight with your newspaper that I'm not so sure many journalists, especially younger journalists at smaller publications, would ever be willing or even able to fight. Do you worry about the future of journalism? Well, sure, yeah. What's happened to the industry with all the cuts, um, including in the ranks of investigative reporters? We're seeing some hopeful signs in terms of nonprofits being started to focus on investigative reporting. But I must say, you mentioned younger journalists. When we put this secret team together at the LA Times to pursue the Puglia story, these were young people. I mean, three of them were, I think, in their 20s. And um, one had only been at the paper for seven or eight months. So they're putting their jobs on the line because this could really go south for them uh, because the editors were not supportive of this story. And uh, I would be perfect. I would have been perfectly understanding if they said, you know, I don't want to get involved in this. I got a job. I can't, you know, where am I going to get another job if I lose this one? I'm, I'm new to the paper. And they did not hesitate for a moment. Not for a second. Takes a lot of guts. I mean, flashback to when you were were... seven months into your career. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think I would have done that. But again, they didn't hesitate. And they didn't hesitate because they knew this was the right thing to do. They're journalists. Journalism is more than about the job, as you know. They're there to do the right thing. And they did. Nobody gets rich doing this. You don't go into journalism because you you imagine this world of wealth and and fame. And sure, you know, uh, someone like yourself covers a great story and wins a Pulitzer Prize and and maybe can uh, turn it into a book. But that's not the typical route. It's a grind. It's a day in, day out. Yeah. And I had no intention of writing a book. I was talked into writing a book by a, a literary agent. And I finally decided to do it because I thought this fuller story needed to be told. And I, I get so many questions in media interviews about the problem, you know, the fight with the editors, because you're media folks, and that's the media part of the story. But the majority of the story is about, you know, the, the people who suffered here at the hands of these two doctors and the people in power who look the other way. You know, these institutions in L.A. that fail the people they're supposed to protect. And it's, you know, it's a real problem. And I hope people who read Bad City come away with that, that there's some, there's, there was an institutional failure across the board in, in this story. Well, you mentioned that there's failures there. There's failures, as you said, across the board. I mean, it, it's the media, it's law enforcement, it's the institution. There's a, an endless list of checkpoints along the way here where, where this could have stopped, but it didn't. Can you talk a little bit about the investigative reporting process? I'm, I'm not sure that most people understand how many months or even years of reporting that go into a story like this? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and that's that gets back to the concern that we're not doing as much investigative reporting as as we need to do. I, I mean that generally for the industry, because it does take a long time. It's expensive. You can't get anything wrong. You have to be extremely thorough. It's not just about gathering records. You can do good stories, investigative stories even, based on data and records, but the best ones come from people. So you have to earn people's trust. The heroes in, in these stories 
are the people who put everything on the line to speak to us, starting with the hotel manager. If that, you know, if he, if his name had been attached to what he was doing back then, he would have been fired, I'm sure, and maybe his career in that industry over. The, the Warren family, starting with the young woman, went on the record. You know, she went on the record. Her brother went on the record about what happened, about, which meant that they talked publicly about their own drug abuse. I mean, that was heroic, and they did that because they wanted to put a stop to this guy. In the Tyndall case, uh, a nurse, Cindy Gilbert, spoke to my colleagues about this. She later spoke to me um, for the book. She tried to blow the whistle on Tyndall, as did others at the universe, to no avail, and she was retaliated against for doing so. So getting the trust of those people, it, it's, it doesn't happen immediately. You have to take great care. And you have to corroborate everything they tell you. A lot of door knocking, a lot of deep dives into records, going back again and again to folks. It takes time, it's expensive, but it's critically important. Another thing I hope people take from Bad City is that when these institutions fail people, and I'm including the DA's office, even the Attorney General's office, certainly the Passing a Police Department, and of course USC, we're often the last resort, investigative reporters. They've, people have gone everywhere else to get the help that they deserve, that they're entitled to. They're denied, and they finally find us or we find them, and at least they get some justice. But it's not way. the normal path to justice. I mean, by the time you have exhausted all options and you are reaching out to the media, to the local newspaper, at that point you, you have, I have to think you've tried everything. You are the yes, last resort. They did. They, again, the family called the police, you know, they told the police. They, um... Again, the FBI was notified that this guy was providing drugs to these young people. Same thing at when the Tyndall case, you know, the, the internal complaints. And nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. Is that just a case of it's one guy and maybe kind of almost like that famous scene in The Wire where the FBI is telling, uh, you know, the Baltimore Police Department that uh, ever since 9-11, they just don't have the resources for local political corruption. Does one guy like that just kind of get lost in the system? Maybe they're not worried I don't, enough I don't about think it? it's that. I think our DA's office has, I think, a thousand attorneys. I mean, we have very large police and sheriff's departments. So they have the resources. They have the resources. They, you know, I, why they didn't do more here? Is it just incompetence, cowardice, cowardice coming from, do we take on, what if, what if we take on this guy who's wealthy and influential and we fail? Is that going to blow up in our face? So it was a careerism, that kind of thing. But it should have never happened. It just should have never happened. What's next for bad city the book is is doing great it's it's been so well received you're you know kind of on a, a mini tour right now talking about it but what's next is is it is it going to be a movie is it is it well there's be been a- there's been some yeah there's been some hollywood interest so i hope that works out we'll see hollywood is a very strange place when it comes to this sort of thing this has to be a completely foreign land for you i mean i, I know that journalists in general don't want to be part of the story and you're probably squirming a little bit talking about yourself and it was very difficult yes and i resisted it for a long time i tried to figure out a way to write the book without using the word i um and i just couldn't do it and i also write about some of my personal experiences with with drug and alcohol abuse i resisted that but in the end i thought you know i'm asking all these other people to open up about their experiences and so i'm kind of being kind of hypocritical if i just shut myself off so i eventually did that but it was very uncomfortable I've, I've never done anything like this it's perfect for the big screen or tv if that happens and and i hope it does because people who read the book and people who will eventually watch this are going to think this is just outrageous i mean you literally can't make 
stuff like this up. It's it's very hard to believe that it happened, but it did. It did, and you're right. You can't make it up. I mean, I didn't have the imagination to come up with all these things. And I should point out, too, that none of this... Um, we needed a lot of lucky breaks. We needed some, you know, just, again, just things falling into place at just the right time. The fact that the whistleblower happened to be at a house... I go into detail in the book about this, happened to be at a house party with one of our photographers, Ricardo. Uh, if, that, if he had been at that party, we wouldn't be here probably. If, if Sarah hadn't done something that finally tied her name to an address linked to Pugliafito, the story might never have happened. You know, things like that. And if I didn't get my hands on those photos and videos, I had no confidence that anything would have ever been published. So, you know, we had a very hard fight as did the people who you know who were dealing with the dean did and but in, but along the way we finally got some lucky breaks do you and, get response any feedback from the from the family or families in the, in this case are, are they are they happy that this that you helped kind of bubble this up to the surface and well again the family uh the warren family is covered by this uh non-disclosure agreement which is again it's to me it was just amazing that a university would impose something like that on this family, who were the victims, but I've gotten feed. You know, I've gotten very good feedback everywhere else, including from USC. You know, the people who work at USC and my best sources on USC stories have always been people who are at USC, who have their institution's best interest at heart and want to see the right thing done. It only makes sense for USC. I mean, you just don't want your institution connected to this, right? Yes. We'll talk a little bit about you for a second. Again, more more of the squirm. But so you're in town now. You're you're talking about the book, but you still got you know Wilkesbury roots. You came back to Penn State main campus for graduate school, um, but you've still got family here, and you still visit the area. Oh yeah, yeah. My, our extended family is is um, anchored in Northeast Pennsylvania. Very large extended family. So. Um, I, this is my third or fourth time back just in the last few years. When I went to Penn State, I, you know, my residence was Wilkesbury. My cousin's a mayor of Wilkesbury. So. We had him on the show a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and they visit us when they can. So, yeah, this is home away from home. We, we consider this you know, our home base in a lot of ways. If you stay in touch with the area, you probably are aware of we've got a little bit of a corruption problem here in the, in the region. Our reporters refer to it as a uh, target-rich environment, especially when they're covering uh, corruption. Uh, in our case, uh, it tends to be a lot of political corruption. I don't think that's unique to this area, though. You've been an investigative Abs- journalist. Absolutely not. The corruption in L.A. is, is off the charts. Three city council members in the last, uh, uh, L.A. city council members in the last few years have been indicted. You know, um, other people who work in the city have gotten into trouble. Uh, we've done, sto- one of the um, Pulitzer Prizes I was part of uh, investigated a small city named Bell some years ago. The corruption there was just astounding. I think eight eight people went to jail in that. No, it's... L.A., there's just way too much corruption in L.A., which gets back to the need for more and more investigative journalists. I don't think our institutions in L.A., the the law enforcement institutions, are that aggressive when it comes to this, especially the local ones, you know, the county, again, the county DA's office. Uh, The feds are a little bit more, you know, aggressive, but... Yeah, a lot, a lot needs to be done. Can we parachute investigative journalists into just about any city or county in the country and uh, come up with some stuff? This is, I have to think that it's its not just an L.A. story. It's not just a Scranton, Wilkesbury, Hazleton, no. Pottsville story. No, uh, a good investigative not. journalist is 
always going to have work to do. Unfortunately, it's human nature to a certain extent. And when that nature is unleashed, if nobody's watching, you're going to find corruption. The book is Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels. Tell me about the name Bad City. That comes from a guy who's, who's lived a long time in L.A., knows the story. A little bit about the title. Well, that was my um, editor's suggestion. And it grew, it grew on me pretty quickly because, again, the, the bigger story here is how all these institutions that largely make up L.A. And when I say city, I'm talking not so much as the, you know, specific jurisdictional boundaries, but the place, the larger place. And it, it was bad. It was, you know, the city behaved badly. You know, the region behaved badly in, you know, in these scandals. And again, in the book, I go in, I have, I briefly go into some other scandals that have occurred in the city. It's just, this, these things should not happen. And, the, and you know, L.A. has, still has this image of a newer city. It's not the old, you know, industrial cities in the Midwest or the Northeast. Um, you know, it's the sunny place, but there's a lot of darkness there. As an investigative reporter, you're never going to run out of stories to tell. No, I'm booked forever. Bad City author and L.A. Times reporter Paul Pringle, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me.